I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. In recent interviews, outgoing Education Secretary Arnie Duncan has identified his failure to do more to combat school desegregation as one of his greatest regrets. His successor, John King, has flagged renewed efforts to promote socioeconomic integration in schools as a top priority for his own limited time in office. But how have patterns of school segregation evolved in recent decades? Are American schools resegregating, as newspaper headlines often suggest? And what do we know about the consequences of school segregation for students? I'm Marty West, Associate Editor of Education Next, and joining me today is Stephen Rivkin, a professor of economics at the University of Illinois at Chicago and the author of a new Ed Next article, Desegregation Since the Coleman Report. Thanks for making the time to talk, Steve. Uh, it's my pleasure, Marty. Thank you for inviting me. So your article is part of a special issue commemorating the 50th anniversary of James Coleman's famous Equality of Opportunity study. And as you know, one of the key goals of that study was to document the extent of racial segregation in American schools in 1965. So more than a decade after the Supreme Court banned legal segregation in Brown v. Board of Education. So what exactly did Coleman find? Well, I think Coleman found extensive segregation and that many black children were attending schools with, with no white children. Uh, and this was particularly the case in the South, but was uh, also true in the North, uh, the Midwest, and the Northeast as well. And, you know, one of the questions they were also investigating was the allocation of resources to these heavily segregated schools. And I think their findings there were, were maybe ran counter to some expectations. Uh, I, I think that that's true, right? The equality of that there was a, a movement towards separate but equal in the South. And I think in, in um, though, though it wasn't equal, that the differences in resources were far smaller than the differences in the composition of children in the schools. Yeah, so I guess ironically, 10 years after Brown versus Board of Education, maybe the nation was running in the direction of the Plessy v. Ferguson standard of separate but equal. Uh, of course, only equal with respect to what they were able to measure in terms of resources, which may have been fairly crude. Um, so we're starting off from a very sort of uh, low point when it came to interracial contact in the schools in the mid-1960s. So let's turn to your analysis of what's happened since that time. And I think one of the great strengths of your article is that you show how the conclusions about what has happened since depend a lot on what measure you use. So perhaps the simplest indicator of segregation is just the share of white students in the school attended by the average black student, which you refer to as the exposure index. So this index started at 27% in 1968 um, when you start your analysis. So what's, what's happened since that time? So, so during the 1970s, there was extensive uh, desegregation activity, particularly in the South, but later in, uh, in the decade and into the early 1980s in northern districts as well. And the exposure index rose quite a bit. So it was at uh, 22% in 1968. So that means that, that uh, the average uh, black student attended a school where 22% of the children in the school were white. And by 1980, that had risen to 36% and remained roughly stable during the 1980s. And by 2012, which is the last year that I look at, it had fallen back to 
So this is the pattern, this decline in exposure since the 1980s, the exposure of black students to white students, that is, uh, that is often used to uh, support claims that American schools are resegregating. Um, but you show that other measures can provide a somewhat different picture. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I, I think this is, this is an important issue, and several things have happened during this period. I think, on the one hand, the Supreme Court rulings have been less favorable towards school desegregation during the 1990s. Um, and 2000s, and so when you when you combine those less favorable rulings with this decline in the uh, exposure of blacks to whites in the schools, I think it naturally leads leads people to uh, to focus on on the resegregation that's going on. And in fact, there are individual school districts that once released from segregation orders have become more uh, racially segregated. But I think it's really important to recognize that there's been large demographic and population changes, both in terms of the demographic composition of children in the United States attending public schools, and also the residential locations, so housing segregation. And so in terms, the, the dominant uh, component, I think, has been the dramatic decline in the fraction of U.S. public school children uh, who, who are non-Hispanic whites. Yes. And that has fallen uh, dramatically, I think, from it was 80% in 1968 down to roughly 50% in 2012. Yeah, so if we're measuring integration by exposure to white students and there are fewer white students to go around, then that's going to naturally make that uh, improvement by that metric more difficult to achieve, right? Right, and I think that, that it's really important to recognize this. I mean, imagine if, if we were in a city in which all of the, the school system was completely integrated in the sense that all schools were 80% white and 20% black, say, in in 2000. And now in 2010, all schools are still completely integrated, but they're now 50% white, 30% Hispanic, and 20% black, but still perfectly integrated. All the schools have the same demographic composition. I think it's, if, you know, for an understanding and for policy purposes, to speak about that as resegregation, I think misses the point. Yeah, so you introduced this other measure, the dissimilarity index, which uh, I guess is a, a measure of how many students would need to be reassigned to a different school in order for all schools to have the same racial composition. Is that uh, a good description? Right. It would be the fraction of, uh, of black children who would have to switch schools in order for all schools to have the same racial composition. So in the example that I just gave, um, that fraction would be zero in both years. And so you would say there was no change in segregation. So what's, what's and been going I think on with that, with that index over time? With that index, and I think that from my point of view, that this is a very informative way to think about segregation as the degree to which students are mixed together, kind of given the composition, the racial and ethnic composition of the student body. And so that over time, you show, has uh, fallen at the school level from 81% down to uh, 66%, I guess? So the, let me uh, see, the dissimilarity index overall has, has fallen right from 81% of black children would have to switch schools 
1968 first to reach complete integration, and that's declined to 66% in 2012, which is, you know, indicative that 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 into that segregation is not as bad as it was in 1968, um, despite the fact that the exposure of um, black children to white children has fallen quite a bit since the late 1980s. And it's important to recognize that the dissimilarity index in 1988 was actually higher than it was in 2012. So even during this period in which exposure to white children was falling, segregation is measured by how well kids are mixed in the schools, given the um, composition of children overall in the system has continued to decline. And one of the things contributing to that is, uh, I guess, declines in housing segregation. I think that's right. There's other research that shows it just documents uh, the degree of housing segregation in major metropolitan areas. And following the implement, implementation of desegregation, both in the South and the North, there was an uptick in, in housing segregation. That it, it, There's very strong evidence that it contributed to uh, the movement of white families out of central cities and into suburbs and contributed to greater housing segregation. But over time, I think that's been swamped by just overall movements uh, in the population, which has led to slow but steady decline in residential housing segregation, and that's contributed to this decline in school segregation. All right, so there's been some decline in school desegregation, but uh, uh, school segregation rather, but uh, you know it's it's still at a pretty high level. I think most uh, people would agree. Um, so, what do we know about the consequences of uh, integrated schools uh, for student achievement, in particular for the uh, achievement of black students. This is something you've been looking at for a long time, uh, both writing an influential article in the Handbook of Education Economics, um, but also in some of your own research with Texas data. So, you know, how has your thinking on this uh, question changed over time? Well, I want to agree with you first that I think segregation remains extensive. So um, there can be no question uh, that large numbers of uh, black children are attending schools with very few white schoolmates, and the same is true for large numbers of white children. And it's a very difficult question to answer uh, the, the benefits, if we try to get a handle on what were the benefits of school desegregation, it's very difficult to, to answer because when these programs were put in place, there were small experiments run, but there was very little effort to try to evaluate whether they were going to work or not, how successful they would be in terms of improving not only test scores, uh, but rates of high school completion and college going and, and future outcomes in the labor market. And so, and, and so we're kind of left without a clear answer. And so I, I think what's valuable is to look at some, some components kind of make, separate the, the big problem into smaller problems and see what we've learned. And so sorry. I think first there is evidence that, that Within, uh, uh, within schools, kids who have black children who happen to be in grades with more white schoolmates than fewer white schoolmates do tend to do better on average. 
So I think there is pretty compelling evidence from our work and work of others that um, for black children, uh, uh, if they're less racially isolated, so if the share of their schoolmates who are black is smaller, achievement tends to be higher, and I think the effects tend to be larger for kids who start off at uh, higher up the achievement distribution. Mm-hmm. I think the the evidence is less clear for trying to figure out what happens if you actually undertake a desegregation program that involves busing or involuntary movement on the part of white children and or black children. It's less clear um, what the effects of those programs have been. Now, there are some attempts in the economics literature to study the effects of those programs by looking at what happened after court orders uh, to desegregate schools in those ways um, that do show some improvements for black uh, students' graduation rates. Is that correct? I think that that's true, and I think that those are, are, are very thoughtful studies, and, they're, and those studies are, are, you know, are probably the best that you could do but they're not experiments, and, you know, in terms of how confident we can be in the results, um, I think we're less confident than, for example, if these were experiments or, you know, or perhaps, had, you know, you were able to have data that enabled you to have a stronger research design. I think there's also more recent work which looks at the negative impacts um, of having a district relieved of the responsibility to desegregate and then changes occur in which the district becomes resegregated and there was an important paper on the charlotte mecklenburg school district Mm -hmm. and it found that arrest rates uh, of black children rose for those children um, who ended up in more segregated schools yeah and and i think one of the big mechanisms there was uh a reallocation of resources and highly effective teachers uh across schools as well that sort of accompanied uh went along with probably was caused by the change in school assignment policies right i think that's exactly right that the that that interestingly the paper doesn't find that the peer composition the changes in peer composition are really the channel that drives the the increase in, in the number of arrests, rather it appears to be driven by resources. Which shows just how complicated this question really is, because there are all sorts of ways in which you could imagine uh, the level of school integration feeding back through the political process and affecting resources in schools and the like. I, I think that's exactly right. And my, my guess would be that when people were really pushing to desegregate the schools in the 1950s and 1960s, there was a belief that if we could only, you know, break the link between school quality and racial isolation um, and what race the child happened to be, that it would really o- open up opportunities for black children, which is probably why people didn't really bother that much to to think about evaluating this, because I think there was such a, a, a widely held belief that it, w- that it had to make a big difference. And I think one of the, you know, one of the... Uh, uh, findings that's reported in uh, Eric Hanischek's article, which is also in this, uh, the Education Next edition on uh, James Coleman and Equality of Opportunity, is that over this long period of time that includes a period of extensive desegregation, we've had very little success in reducing the racial achievement gap. So uh, I hear you saying that it's hard to make a case that there would be transformative benefits uh, for black students of 
extensive uh, efforts to desegregate schools. But uh, also one of the things that's very clear in from your article is that there are all sorts of reasons why we uh, would benefit from having uh, a less segregated school system uh, in a multiracial society. So, you know, for policymakers who are interested in that um, goal, what do we know about efforts to promote school integration? What can they do and what should they avoid? Well, I think it's I think it's interesting because the Supreme Court has imposed very strict limits on what will be um, constitutional mm-hmm. in terms of further desegregation efforts by race. Um, it may become even more. I think there is more scope for desegregating on the basis of income. Mm-hmm. And so trying to um, alleviate concentrations and reduce concentrated poverty and and I think that that there's some evidence that that's beneficial, but I, th- I think that again it's it's been a very difficult uh, um, area to um, to get convincing results uh, and and more so, I think that that public policy now in in the realm of education is now really focused on trying to provide greater opportunities um, for children of all races and ethnicities, but I think particularly for um, for black children and Hispanic children, um, opportunities to um, attend higher achieving um, schools through the choice uh, enabling you to go to a charter school. Um, I think many of the evaluation efforts are really concentrated on central cities that have been historically at high fractions of black and Hispanic enrollment. And so I think there are many efforts being made um, which are not race-specific in terms of the policy, but are policies that are really targeting um, uh, children who have been disadvantaged economically uh, or for other reasons. Thank you, Steve, for uh, taking the time to be with us today. Uh, I think we'll leave the conversation there and let readers know that they can uh, find your article on the Education Next website at www.educationnext.org. As I mentioned, it's part of a special issue, a series of articles commemorating James Coleman's uh, landmark work on education and the equality of educational opportunity in particular. Uh, Thanks very much, Steve. Thank you very much, Marty. Thank you for tuning in to Education Next's weekly podcast, released every Wednesday morning. For more on education reform, visit us online, educationnext.org. Thank you.